What is the meaning of life? This is a question that philosophers, theologians, and everyday people have struggled with for thousands of years. Here at Mosaic Church, we believe that life has great meaning, that the meaning of life is most beautifully discovered in the context of God's great rescue story, the gospel. The Bible reveals to us that in the beginning of our human story, our created purpose was lost when we abandoned God's story for us and chose to go our own way. But God refused to let the story end there. God's great love and mercy for us rescues our soul and restores our created purpose, giving our lives deep, rich meaning. Yet despite this great discovery, we often live our lives in the day-to-day stresses and strains without experiencing the fullness of His restored purpose. Let's take some time together to unpack what it looks like when the gospel of Jesus Christ collides with our everyday lives and begins to inform the way that we should live. Here we go, Mosaic. This is life. Well, I got to tell you, you know, as we uh, journey through our humanity, it is incredible to me that the second we enter into the scriptures, I mean, the second we start with the story of God, Genesis chapter one, verse one, within the first three chapters of the first book, everything that we need to know about why we are the way we are, why we feel the way we feel, why we struggle the way we struggle is found in the first three chapters of the entire scripture, right? I mean, our human story as it relates to God is revealed to us instantaneously in the beginning of scripture. Just to say, just in case you're wondering why you feel the way you do, why you struggle the way you do, here's the answer. In the very beginning of the story of scripture, here's what we discover just quickly again. We are created as humanity into an extraordinary reality. We are placed into this created uh, world, all this stuff around us, and we are placed in it with this purpose to be able to experience God, to know God, to, to, to experience God's freedom, God's life, God's light, God's, God's wonder. And, and, and creation, all the stuff around us, it says in scripture, it's designed to shout at us, here is the glory of God. Here is the character of God. Here is the wonder of God. And we were created literally to, to live in this space surrounded by stuff that just goes, God is awesome. And we are to experience that wonder with God in an intimate and deep relationship with him. With, with no boundaries, nothing broken down. And as an additional wonder, God says, since you're going to be experiencing me so fully, I'm going to create you in some ways just like me so that you become a reflection of me, so that you image me. So our purpose is dual. Uh, it is to experience the fullness of God through the stuff around us and through intimacy with him and then to make make him known through the life we then live in great joy and freedom. And we make him known to all of creation, but most importantly, to one another. And so this is our God-created purpose, to live under the divine authority of God, living in his story for us, and making his glory known through our life. And our enemy came along early in Genesis, early in our human story, and said, I got a better story for you. Instead of living under God's divine authority, living in his story for your life, and glorying his glory, here's a better one. Become your own God, live your own story, and glory yourself, baby. I mean, that's awesome. 
And we bought into that, and we said, that sounds really cool. We pursued our own divinity, our own story, our own glory. We ate of the forbidden fruit, and we did not discover divinity, did we? We discovered a whole new word we didn't really know before that. It's a word we now know very well. It's the word death. It has lots of implications, and it left us empty. It left us lost. It left us uh, without any sense of ourselves or any sense of anything. And so we began to chase after all of the stuff around us, the relationships we have, the things that are around us, and the circumstances in which we live, and we began to try to extract from them as much as possible what would fill the need in us that was now so empty, and frankly, we tried to rule over them, which would fulfill the need in us to be gods, right? So we have this dynamic, I I need, I need, I need to rule, I need to rule, I need, I need, and this is our life. Solomon says, we are creatures that chase after the wind. And it's like, (laughs) and we just go at it. This is in our human DNA. No wonder we struggle so deeply. And then in our cultural context, as though that was not enough, uh, there was movements within the Western culture that deeply fed this already ever-present DNA in us for a need to, to collect as much stuff as we can to fill our need and to rule over as much as possible. It was called the Industrial Revolution. Oh, it had some wonder to it, no doubt. It, uh, it created advancements of extraordinary realities. I mean, we watched the Industrial Revolution produce much of this new world we, we get to produce all these incredible things. But as an undercurrent to that, it also began to subtly reshape the entire value system by which we live as, as human beings. You see, what happened is, as soon as production became this incredible, wondrous advancement, it also started happening that you and I need to become producers. We need to produce, 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 and that is what makes us valuable. But then as we began to produce a bunch of stuff and we had all the stuff we produced, we wondered to ourselves, what do we do with all the stuff we produced? And we figured out, if I produce a bunch of stuff, then it is your job to consume what I've produced. And then it is my job to consume what you've produced. And so we became a society not only of producers but consumers and our value system started shifting and said listen you are only as good to society as that which you produce and that which you consume if you only produce you're not that good actually if you only consume you do play some value but if you produce and consume wow then you're awesome and so we became obsessed with what production and consumption That's what we do. And then we figured out that when you consume a bunch of stuff, this stuff has a means uh, by creating a space for you where you're relatively safe because you have lots of it. And so then comfort and convenience follow. And so we we got this interesting idea in in our hearts that our end goal is comfort and convenience. You can sum that up in the word happiness, right? To be happy. And to be happy, you must produce enough so that you can consume enough, so that you can collect enough, so that you can be happy. That's our life. And from the time we are born into the Western culture, we are driven by this pursuit. Produce, consume, collect, be happy. And so we we run, and you know what happens? The stuff, that's our bank accounts, our retirement funds, our cars, our houses, our clothes, all that stuff, that stuff becomes something that begins to whisper to our souls and says this, I will protect you, I will protect you. If you have enough of me, I will keep you safe. And we feel protected by our stuff, don't we? 
I mean, the more we can collect, the more protected we are. Our stuff will protect it. And then it begins and it whispers to us, oh, I won't only protect you. No, 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 no. I will satisfy you. I will. And let's be honest. I'm not trying to be all facetious here. Does your stuff satisfy you? Uh, yeah, are you kidding me? Have you seen the new Apple Watch? I want one right now. As soon as you get it, then it takes your pulse and you can exercise again, because of course you can exercise without it, because before you didn't know what your pulse was, you didn't know you were exercising. So, I mean, there's so much. I mean, there is great satisfaction in the things we get to collect, so let's just be honest, our stuff has legitimate reason to say, I satisfy you. I mean, think about what it felt like when you bought your first Apple device, you know? Sorry, non-Apple fans. Um, but anyways, the... Um, so, so there is a reality to the satisfaction that our stuff produces in our soul. And so it whispers to us, I protect you, I satisfy you. And then it begins, right? It says, and listen, listen, I save you. Our stuff is our salvation, isn't it? If you don't have enough stuff by the time you're 65, you're in trouble. See, you're not safe. You are not saved. But if you have enough, if you've collected enough, then you will be saved. And so our stuff becomes deeply important to us. And then on top of that, our stuff defines us. When you got up this morning and you got dressed, do not imagine that you didn't think to yourself, I gotta think carefully about what I'm gonna put on and what car I drive to that place because my stuff defines me. What I wear, what I drive, where I live, what I do, in our cultural context, it tells us about who you are. So you can imagine why our stuff matters so much to us, can't you? Why our money and our bank accounts and our, and our uh, 401ks matter to us so much. Because they are our life. And then we encounter the gospel. The gospel comes to us and we collide with it at some point in our lives. And the gospel, this message of the re rescue act of God in our lives, it, it suddenly confronts all of this reality and says, whoa, listen. The reason that you were lost and that you need so much and you need satisfaction, you need this, is because you were created for this, but you were lost to that, but I'm back to come and get you, Jesus says. The gospel says he came for us. He did not abandon us despite the fact that we abandoned him, and he has come to rescue our souls, to restore our purpose, and to redeem our future. And the gospel says, I'm here for you. You do not need to pursue those things anymore because I am enough for you. And when we first encounter the gospel, there is a freedom in it and a beauty in it and we, we sense this lightness that comes and we're like, oh, could it be? That's incredible. And the gospel begins to reveal to us a new identity. My value is not in what I produce. It is not in what I consume. It is in fact found in the, the reality that I was created. That's enough. He made me. That makes me significant. That makes me important because he doesn't make anything without intention. So I matter because God made me. And then he says, oh, no, no, I didn't just make you. I love you. Oh, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. You mean I'm just not just made, I'm loved. That's why you matter. You matter because I made you and you matter because I love you. And you are significant uh, despite producing nothing or producing everything. It's irrelevant. What's relevant is that I made you and I love you. And I have a plan for you, a story for you that I'm writing for you. That makes it significant. I have created you with purpose to know me and to make me known. That's awesome. I mean, it just goes on and on, and we're like, wow. And then as the gospel begins to call us out of the life we live and calls us back into the life before the fall, right? It starts saying, I created you before your disastrous fall with deep significance and purpose. I'm gonna invite you back to that place. What is the gospel inviting us back to? It's inviting us back to God's divine authority, 
God's story for our life and God's glory through our life, right? That's where it all started. And abandoning our authority of our own life, our story we're writing for ourselves, and our glory we're trying to display. And so it invites us back. And so you know what we do? (laughs) This is what we do. (laughs) We make some space in our life and we pull up a throne. Right next to the throne of our stuff. And we go, God, I will make you Lord of my life. And then we say, God, why don't you come sit? And then we do this. We take some of our stuff and we go, and you know what? Because of your love for me, I'm going to give you some of my stuff. I am. I mean, I might even give you more than 10%. I'm just saying. It's going to be awesome. And we pull the throne of God next to the throne of our stuff and our relationships and our life. And we put them next to each other. And that's where we always begin as human beings. Because as much as we've discovered the gospel, remember we grew up feeling deeply that this stuff is going to keep us safe. It's going to save us and protect us, and so we pull God up. And then as God sits next to an idol, which always happens in human stories, God sits next to the idol for a while, and the idol doesn't really survive well. And God begins to kind of shove at it a little bit. And the idol topples, and we get a little crazy. What's happening? And then we find out. The gospel says, I, I, I want you to realize that that idol is a problem, because here's what the gospel begins to say. See, you thought... I was coming in as an additional piece to what you already have. But here's the truth. The culture's been lying to you all along. See, the stuff around you's been lying to you all along. You think it's gonna protect you. You think it's gonna satisfy you. You think it's gonna save you because it sure feels like it will. But that is a lie. What it is actually doing is it is actually creeping its way into every part of your DNA and it is sucking the life out of your soul because you do not possess your stuff. It is unpredictable, and there's other human beings around you trying to take it. Uh, They are thieves and moths and rust, and it's coming for your stuff. And so here's the deal, man. You are not safe. You are constantly in a place of great turmoil. Here's why. Because what you think you possess actually possesses you. And God says to us, listen, I'm here to set you free from anything that possesses you because the only thing that will give you life is when I have all of you. And so we sit nervously on our uh, throne and we look at our stuff and we go, what does that mean? Jesus spoke to this reality uh, in Matthew when he said, listen, here's the deal. I want you to know that the stuff of your life, the things that you have, because they have become so valuable to you and they measure so much of your value, we're going to have to undo them. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus speaks to this. This is early on in his teaching in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. So he gets right at it. He gets right at it and he goes, I know your idols, I know where they exist and we are gonna go at them because my heart for you is freedom. In Matthew chapter six, which is page 526 of our Bibles, in verse, um, in, in verse 18, this is what it says. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. There he shows us the vulnerability of what we think we possess. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now listen to this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, there's the great reveal. That's where God whispers to us, you think you possess your stuff. That is not true. Your stuff possesses you. 
That is always true. Anytime you possess anything, in other words, you use the word my or mine, the second that happens, you are possessed on some level by whatever that thing is. Because where your, where your stuff is, where your uh, passions are, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. He goes on. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. He goes, where you're fixing your vision, where you're looking to gain your protection, your satisfaction, uh, your salvation, this is where your eyes are going to turn. And if your eyes are looking in the wrong places, it is going to produce death in you. That's why Jesus later on says, uh, as he speaks later on, he, he says, listen, you fix your eyes on me, man. The author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and fix them nowhere else, because where your eyes are, that's where your life will come from. And look what he says, he goes on. No one can serve two masters. There are the two thrones. No one can do that. No one, not you, not me, we can't do it. Watch what happens. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can have money, but you cannot serve God and money. And so Jesus says to us, listen, here's the deal. Your heart is in danger. Your soul is in danger because you have grown up in a world where your stuff became more than it ever should have. A Tozer, who's one of my favorite authors, wrote a book. Um, he was a pastor in Chicago. He's dead now. Um, but he wrote a number of books. And one of my favorite books is The Pursuit of God. The second chapter in The Pursuit of God is called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. The blessedness of possessing nothing. And he's not talking about giving all your stuff away. He's actually talking about Abraham, one of the richest men that ever walked the face of the earth. And while he was that rich, he possessed nothing. And this is what Tozer says. Listen to this. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but are verbal symptoms of our deep disease, he says. Listen to this. He says, our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine in our life and things were allowed to enter. Listen to this one. God's gifts now take the place of God. And the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. I love Tozer's language. He's like, this is disastrous. This is horrid for our souls. When stuff became that valuable to us that we possessed it, something happened in us that was dark and horrid. And it is eating and eroding away at our soul. And Jesus is coming to us saying, listen to me. You need, you need to stay free of this. This is dangerous. See, God's heart for us is always freedom. It always is. And if God has to walk into our uncomfortable places and go, this is gonna be uncomfortable for you, but I'm coming for your idols, he'll do it because he loves you and he loves me and he wants us to be free of the things that possess us. And so the authors of scripture, as they now write scripture, what you will begin to see from Genesis to Revelation is that God was constantly putting into play different realities that would measure how we respond to the stuff that God has provided so that we will guard our hearts against that stuff becoming king of our heart, right? And so we see this incredible systematic process put into place from, from the Old Testament onward where God says this, here's how I want you to play this, okay? Every time I provide 
provide more stuff for you to navigate and to manage and to steward for the stories I have. You are going to think it's yours. You are. You are going to think it's yours. That's the way it rolls. But here's what you can do. Right off the bat, before you even start touching it, you go, the first part of my stuff I give back to God, not because I owe him anything, because it's all his anyways. It is a means by which we measure our heart and say, this is not mine. This is not mine. This will not protect me. This will not satisfy me. This will not save me. God will do those things. This is bonus material that I now get to use for my created purpose, which is what? To know God through his provision and to make him known through his provision. And that became what we know as tithing. This act of giving first fruits away to say, God save my heart and do with this as you see fit. And so the scriptures begin to unpack for us the safety and wonder and gift that giving has become for us to guard our hearts. Solomon says, above all else, guard your hearts for it is the wellspring of life. And Jesus says, you wanna guard your heart? Then place your treasures in places so that your heart will be in the right places. Do not look for treasures in stuff. That is just what God's given you. That is not for you. It is not about you. Can we enjoy our stuff? Yes, but we must be careful because it can quickly turn on us. And so we begin to realize that the gospel freedom that is given us in giving and, and, and in letting go is actually a gospel freedom that sets our souls free from being possessed by our stuff. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be enough. If all that giving did was that it produced freedom in our soul, that would be enough. But what we discover in Scripture is that's just the starting point. God is at work inside of us, and God is at work outside of us simultaneously through this gift of stuff. Our bank accounts, our, our, our retirement funds, our cars, our houses, our clothes, our things, everything we have, God is at work inside, and God is at work outside of us simultaneously through our stuff. And the more we release uh, the sovereign hold over our stuff to a sovereign God, the more powerful the internal freedom becomes and the more incredible the opportunities we get emerge on the outside of our story. What do I mean by that? Listen, when we release our stuff, God then gives us opportunity to share in his story instead of building only our story. See, suddenly we, we find all the stuff we didn't know we had, and we go, what do I do with it? And God goes, I got some stories for you. I'm already writing them, I'm already at work in them, they're already playing out, but you get to participate in them. Uh, Joel Kaufman, one, uh, our student ministries pastor, and one of our teaching pastors here, uh, he used to work in a car dealership. And what the car dealership would do once in a while is they would give him money to go to the auctions where they sell used cars, and he would buy a bunch of used cars for the dealership. He would bring the cars back, and then the dealership would take those cars, fix them up a bit, and sell them for more money. So it was a very important job because if you bought the wrong kinds of cars and brought them back, that wasn't great for the dealership because they would either lose money or wouldn't make much. But if you happen to have an eye for great stories, uh, all great cars in this case, uh, then you would really bring back incredible cars and they would go, well done, and they would do what next time? Instead of having you on the floor trying to sell cars, they would give you more money to go buy more cars. And this is what was happening with Joel. He would get more and more money, more and more freedom, less and less restrictions because they would go, go buy cars. You do a great job with this. If, if Joel brought back silly cars, then the dealership would start going, you know, you're not the guy that I want going out to the auctions. I'm gonna find somebody else. But can you imagine what it might have been like if Joel was given a couple thousand bucks, you know, $20,000, go buy some cars. 
And he heads out of the parking lot, and, and I call John and go, what are you up to? And he goes, uh, dude, I'm, I'm going to go buy some cars today. And I go, you got some free time? I'm hungry. And we go, sure. And we go to lunch, and Joel goes, it's on me, because Joel wants me to like him. So he takes some of the money, and he buys lunch with it. And then he goes, you know what? The auctions go till 6 o'clock. You want to go to Fun Spot? So we go to Fun Spot, and we just, we just have a blast, man. I mean, we just, and, and he goes, you know what? Why just you and me? I got 50 other friends that will like me if I pay for Fun Spot for them. So he invites 50 other friends, and they come. And we just blow through those thousands of dollars. And Joel ends up with 126 bucks. And he heads to the car auctions at 547. Shows up there, and he looks for a car that he can buy for $132, because he's got to take something back with him. He finds the junkiest car on the lot and buys it, gets back to the dealership. Hey, listen, I've got a car for you. How do you think that would go down? You know what's crazy? Here's what I realized when Joel told me the story of how that used to work. I, I thought to myself, that is our story, isn't it? That we are given all these resources and God goes, listen, go have some fun out there collecting my stories. There's so many of them. They're orphans, they're widows, there's destitute, there's social justice, there's, there's people that need Jesus. There's, I mean, there's, I, I, there, there are more stories than you will ever know what to do with. So you just, go, you just go collect a few of them. I'm already writing them, I'm good. I don't need you. God doesn't need us to fulfill his stories. His stories are being written just fine without us. He doesn't need our stuff, he doesn't need us. But what he does do is he invites us to share in the story with the stuff he's given us to use for the story. And he goes, you get to do this. And we go, sweet. But most of us, me included, you know what we often do in reality is we go out and we build our story. And at the end of the day, we go, I got 126 bucks left over, didn't end up using it. I should probably go pick up a small car. And I, and I think we just miss the entire story. So Paul writes about this. He writes to the church in Corinth. Now the church in Corinth, he wrote two letters to them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In the first letter he wrote to them, he was very corrective. He was a little ticked, okay? Uh, a lot ticked, actually. And, and he was very harsh. When we read 1 Corinthians, and we will get there in our journey, you will be uncomfortable. I will be uncomfortable just reading it to you because you'll be going, oh my gosh, I don't want to be the Corinthian church. Wow. I mean, it was rough stuff because they were doing so much wrong and Paul was like, no, no, no. And then a few years later, he writes a second letter to the church in Corinth, and the second letter, totally different tone. As a matter of fact, in the second letter, he actually tells the church in Corinth, hey, when I wrote my first letter, I know it ticked you off. I do. And, and I felt bad. I did. I didn't really want to write it. In fact, when I was writing it, I thought to myself, I shouldn't send this. But then I sent it, and then you were mad, and you hated me for a while. But here's the deal. The reason I wrote it was because I was hoping it would bring correction into your life that would lead to maturity, that would lead to fruit, that would lead to freedom. And guess what? Now I'm writing to you to tell me I'm so glad I wrote that letter because it did exactly what I hoped it would do. See, the church had matured by this time. So he's writing the second letter to say, I'm so excited about you guys. But in the second letter, he writes uh, in multiple occasions, now that you have matured and you're excelling in these things, awesome, there's so much more. See, he's not done. He's going, oh, now I can call you into really awesome freedom. See, before I was just trying to get you to point zero, but now that you you are mature, now I can talk to you about the real things the gospel invites us into. Not just commands from us, but gives us as a gift. So he writes to the church in uh, Corinth a second time, and in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, we find this little portion of the letter. It's on page 628 of our Bibles. Turn there. You're going to watch now 
The power of releasing our resources, our stuff, our, our bank accounts, our, our retirement funds, our things, releasing them to God and saying, what do you want to do with them? What do you want me to do with them? You tell me, even at the risk of God saying, I, I, I want you to give it all away. He very rarely does. That's not, that's not necessarily the version of spiritual, but he is going to direct you on it. Now watch, this is what he writes. Second uh, Corinthians chapter eight, verse one. Look what it says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's talking now to the church in Corinth about some other churches in Macedonia. He's like, I want to tell you a story about some other churches that had occurred that is awesome. I want you to hear this. This is going to be cool. Okay? He says this. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is a fascinating sentence, isn't it? Do you hear what he's saying? Hey guys at Corinth, I want to tell you a little story about some other churches I bumped into in Macedonia. So during a time where they faced great oppression, great difficulty, they were under distress. I mean, the, 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 the depression was theirs, right? It was hitting them hard. What would you think would happen when you were struggling? Well, you'd, you'd think you'd back up on generosity because we give out of our excess. We don't give out of our generosity usually. So he goes, during a time of great affliction for them, uh, their joy in the Lord and their poverty. So in that time, a great wealth of generosity was born out of them. Now, Paul's gonna describe what this is. He's gonna unpack for us how and why this happened. Take a look. He says this. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify. So he starts there. Look, I'm not talking about tithing here, because giving according to our means is us saying, this is what God has given me. Now I'm going to take a portion of that, and I'm going to give it. That's giving according to your means. Each one of us can and should give according to our means. That is standard operating procedure to guard our hearts in Christ Jesus and to be part of the story of God instead of preserving everything for our story. So whatever the means is, a percentage of what you have is given. So he said, look, they were already giving according to their means based on the standard principles. I can testify to that. But then he says this, look at this, look at this. And beyond their means of their own accord. Now he says both those things very importantly because he says this, I want you to know about the churches in Macedonia They were going through great struggle. They were in poverty in many ways, but they, they had great joy in their struggle and out of their poverty was born a wealth of generosity. He's not saying how much money, he's just saying out of the little they had, they seemed to give so much. He goes, not only did they give out of their means, but they gave above and beyond what they were able to give. They shouldn't have been able to do this. In fact, they, they weren't able to do this. And here's what he says. And it was on their own accord. So Paul's saying, I didn't go through a campaign. I didn't send them a newsletter. I didn't say, guys, I know you're struggling, but my ministry's struggling worse. Can you give a little more? And so they did. That would have been a cool story. But he goes, no, 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 I didn't even ask. I didn't tell them I need more. They gave according to their means, and that was great. But on their own accord, they gave more. Now the sentence appears that fascinates me. Pay close attention to this next sentence because everything lays right here. Watch this. Watch this. Verse four. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Have you ever heard of a church like this? 
And this is insane. I'm going to ask Paul when I die. Did you make it up? I just want to know because it's a great illustration. But it's so impossible to believe that there was churches in this time in affliction, in poverty, giving what they should give. And then on top of that, giving more than they could give. And when apparently Paul kind of went, it's okay. It's, it's okay. No, you guys need this more than we do. This is what their response was. Please, Paul, please don't send it back. Please allow us to share in the story of God and caring for the saints. Please, we beg you earnestly, take it. I mean, can you imagine what our church would be like if week after week we were like, okay, can we just announce we don't know what to do with all the resources you all are giving. Stop it. And then you all went, please don't ask us that. Please, we beg of you, take more. Don't you dare remove from us the grace and honor of sharing in the story of God. What would happen? And Paul is saying this is actually happening in the churches in Macedonia. So Paul uses this illustration now in the life of the church in Corinth. Because they're doing really well. He says, okay, so this is the story about the churches in Macedonia. Now listen to what he says. And this, not as we expected, this is verse five, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So here's what he's saying. Here's why this was happening. Wasn't because they had more than they needed. Wasn't because we did a campaign. It was because at some point they figured out the grand secret of freedom. They had given themselves to the Lord already. See what he's saying? See, we figured out they'd already given their hearts to God. God was already enough for them. They'd already bought into the gospel centrality that they had been rescued, their soul set free, that they were free now to live their, their restored purpose to actually use everything they are and everything they have for the glory of God. And in fact, they were so obsessed with that that at any point in time that they perceived that they had any resources that might be invested in a God story and someone was telling them, keep it for yourself, they were earnestly begging not to because their hearts already belong to God. They were already free. See, we don't pity these people. We are in awe of their freedom. He said, so they, their hearts already belong to God, and so by God's will, then their resources diverted to the ministry of the kingdom of God. Now look what he says. We urged Titus, accordingly, we urged Titus, that as he had started, he should continue and complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. See, Paul is saying here, you know how much this matters? This issue of how we handle our stuff, how we steward it for the sake of Christ, it matters so much to our internal freedom and so much to the external uh, application of God's work that I am urging you, Church of Corinth, to act accordingly to the churches in Macedonia. And even though you excel in faith and in earnestness and in love and all that, excel also in this because frankly, this matters that much. That's a big deal from Paul. Look what he says right here uh, in, in chapter 9 uh, in verse 6. This is kind of the, the continuation of this context. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 9. The point is this, Paul says. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See what it's saying? It's saying, guys, this is the point. 
God will always be enough for you. He will always provide for you what you need, not what you think you need. And that will free you up to take all that you have and to utilize it for the great good works that he has prepared in advance for you to participate in. And when we hear this, there's a part of us that kind of goes, oh, that feels and, and tastes so good. And there's a part of us that's scared to death, isn't it? So like, what does this mean about my stuff? Because somewhere in there, it's still possessing us a bit. This sounds like an incredibly important spiritual issue, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like this issue, according to Paul and Jesus, this is big on our journey in maturity and our journey in intimacy with Jesus. In fact, this sounds like something that could derail that. Somebody said to me this week, if we talk candidly and biblically about our stuff with people, it could potentially be the single most important issue in our cultural context, in our spiritual maturing and our intimacy with Jesus, and our ability to live for the kingdom and glory of God and not for our own. It sounds that important. So why is it then that it's so hard to talk about? Because it is, isn't it? I mean, whenever we get to the money thing, we're like, yeah. That's, that's difficult, I'll tell you why. The enemy does not want us to get this right, I can tell you that, and here's what he does to make sure we don't. See, whenever we talk about money, whenever we talk about stuff, immediately we're talking about something very personal, aren't we? Because it, it, it is yours. E- even though we now know my and mine are dangerous words, it feels like it's yours, doesn't it? So when I come to you and I say, hey, God wants to talk to you about your stuff, we sort of uh, step back and go, how much of my stuff does he want to talk about? <laughs> and what exactly does he want to say about it? Because I know what the Bible says, I tithe, please leave me alone. Or I don't tithe, but I've got several reasons, can we go through them? See, immediately we get defensive, because it's personal, and you know why we get defensive? Because let's be honest, guys. Let's just be honest with each other. I'm honest with you, I feel the same way. My stuff still possesses me in part, it does. (laughs) It's still there. I mean, I want the Apple Watch, I'm just saying. And again, there's nothing wrong with getting the Apple Watch, but, but I feel it. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? I feel it. Don't you feel it? That little bit of tug, that possession. When somebody's trying to take your stuff, you still feel like they're trying to take you, don't you? So when we talk about stuff, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable. But I want you to know that if we don't talk about stuff, it will be much more comfortable now and much, much more detrimental soon. The second reason it's so difficult to talk about stuff is because of the context in which we're talking about it. We're in church. Okay, we're in church. So you'd think this would be a good place to talk about stuff, but it, it isn't usually, I'll tell you why. Because there's mixed motives. See, let's just be honest again for a second. See, if you release your stuff, and you release it well, where will you likely release it to? Well, us. Isn't that so fun? So now that produces a question, doesn't it? What is my motive on this stage talking to you about your stuff? Is it because we need it? Is it because we want it? Because you know I could do that well. I could convince all of you to give your stuff to me and this church so we can build bigger things and more awesome stuff and then your stuff will be used for it. But, but isn't that true? Because for 2,000 years, isn't that what the church has often done? They have sucked out of the people of the church stuff and then they've built larger kingdoms for themselves. Not every church, not all the time, but it has happened and it has happened enough that it's a visible part. And so I'm just gonna be honest with you, I get it. I get that when I'm talking to you about your stuff, there is mixed motives so now you wanna see the small print. Who do I need to give my stuff to? Is it you guys? And why you guys? And what are you gonna do with it? And I'm just curious, because you know, I'm just saying. Because if, if, if it's between building your kingdom or the church's kingdom, I'd go with your kingdom. You know, I'm just saying, right? Because both are horrid. But then you may as well keep your stuff. So it's difficult, because it's your personal stuff we're talking about, and the church seems to want it. And so now you go, what does this mean? But God's heart for you and I is freedom. 
So our typical response here at Mosaic, I'm just gonna be honest with you over the last 11 years, because I'm so afraid that you might think we want your stuff. I'm so afraid of that. Because if you do think we want your stuff, then the gospel immediately diminishes. Immediately the gospel becomes smaller here. And that's my nightmare, right? I never want the gospel to be smaller. And so in, in an effort to make sure that you do not think we want your stuff, one, we don't talk about stuff much here at all. I mean, on occasion, here and there. Ten, you know, in 10 years, a couple times for a moment here and there. And when we do, we think very carefully to try to not make it too personal. And then, you know, we put boxes on the back of the wall with the tithing, and you need to go through a closet into Narnia to find the box, right? <laughs> we want it to be that, that difficult for you so that, so that we are absolutely convinced that it's intentional on your part. You want to give online? Good luck. I mean, yeah, you need 17 accounts and 12 passwords. And so we're like, we, 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 we want to make this as hard as we can for you so, so that you know we don't want your money. That's, that's how we've reacted to that. And, and, and it has had its time and its place here because it's a good season because the church can be perceived as that. But in the spring of this year, God started whispering to my heart and saying, Renaud, I, I get your heart, I do. Thank you, so sweet. But you're doing great damage if you're not careful. Because if you leave people alone in their stuff, they will not emerge out of this idol by themselves. You've got to invite them out. You've got to challenge them out. You've got, like Paul did, Paul didn't apologize. Paul didn't apologize. He, he spoke in. And so we've realized, you know what? We've got, we got to step into this differently. We've got to deal with our stuff because our stuff possesses us and we don't want that for you. And, and so we asked the question, you know, how, how, do we, how do we make sure that as we invite you into stories here that you do not perceive that it's for us? And so two, two conclusions always, a better way than maybe just ignoring stuff. One, we've now got a track record. So now we can say, have you seen what past generosity has produced here? Have you seen what past generosity has brought you? Have you seen the stories that have come? Look, we, 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 we don't have bigger kingdoms. We have more stories. That's what we have. And, and I want to show you the stories. And so we started getting exciting. Man, what, is it, what would it look like to show the church stories of what past generosity has done? And then we thought, well, if we're going to show them stories about past generosity, what happens if we begin to dream about future stories and we invite them into future generosity? Because ultimately, remember what this is about is changing the world through releasing our stuff so that our hearts are set free from possession and God's work can advance at, a, at an incredible pace because we're participating. Not that it won't without us, but that we get to share in it. See, I don't want to miss a single story that we might be able to share in. I don't. And I don't want you to miss it either. See, God started whispering to me, they're going to be ticked at you when they die, Rena. They are. Because they're gonna find out you gave them a little backpack drive here and there and a few little things that sounded good. Uh, but they're gonna find out all these other stories that they could have been part of that you made phone calls to people that had resources to kind of divert the whole story and they got to share in it and these guys didn't and they're gonna be mad. And I was like, wow, God, I, I don't want that either. This is what Paul said. Titus, make sure you continue to call your people into this act of grace so that they can participate so they don't have to beg earnestly to be part of the stories, but that you can say, if you want in, here's how. So we started looking over the last few years of our church's story, and we made a video. I loved making this video, because I was blown away, honestly. I'm like, what God has done, what you're about to see is a video that tells the stories of what has happened in the walls of this place as a result of the great generosity of people in our past. 
people that have infused, and some of you sit in this room, some of you are right here, you are some who have invested in this story of making this world happen so that what you're about to see could take place. And I want you to know if you're here and you have invested into the story of Mosaic through tithing, through above and beyond, or through helping us into spaces like these, I want you to know these are your stories that you get to carry into eternity to give to Jesus. They're yours to give to him as they are mine. And if you are here and you haven't had that opportunity, at the end of this video, we will invite you into the stories to come and tell you if you want in, you're welcome. You're welcome to step in. If you don't, fine. But know that this is an opportunity for you to share in what is now a track record of a place that does not produce kingdoms for itself, but produces stories for the kingdom of God. Take a look at this video. When I say, let's invest resources into world change, what comes to mind for you? I'll tell you what comes to mind for me. Investing in orphans and widows, in the destitute, carrying the gospel and demonstrating the gospel into the four corners of the earth and facilitating that. That's what comes to mind when I say, let's invest in world change. I'll tell you what doesn't come to mind is pouring resources into buildings, into brick and mortar. But I have to confess, as I've watched the story of Mosaic unfold over the last 10 years, I have come to realize that that view was naive and limited. Yes, investing in unnecessary things in buildings is certainly a waste, but providing the space for the ministry of discipleship to take place and making that space feel like home could potentially be one of the greatest investments we could make in world change and in affecting the gospel toward the world. Allow me through the story of Mosaic to show you what I mean. You know, it was crazy when we moved into this building, we had about 50 people and I remember thinking, we're gonna be able to grow into this building over 10 years. Then that first summer in 2006, we advertised in the community, we had some events and the growth exploded so quickly, we actually pulled the advertising halfway through. It seemed that once we moved into a building, there was this legitimacy that people felt, well, they're here to stay and so they came and we were able to spend our time impacting their lives. I remember one day, grabbing my bicycle and wanting to hit the trail and just just shut down and just ride and I on that specific day I rode a little bit further than, I, than what I'm used to and on my ride I saw a sign that said Mosaic Church 1002 and I was immediately intrigued what kind of church meets at 1002 and my curious mind wanted to find out so I saw a building a church tucked in the woods and could remember vividly walking through the doors and was filled with a strange emotion, something that I'd never experienced before. And I could remember it taking my breath away. And as I walked around the hallways, everything I saw was authentic. And what I, what I heard was inspiring. And I realized that what I was feeling was home. One Sunday night service turned into a Sunday night and Sunday morning service, which then grew to two Sunday morning services. Then at one point we were doing three Sunday morning services. So much for my 10 year plan. In just four years, we were completely maxed out. It was time to expand again. How many people work in this room right here? Somewhere around 12. 12 people in this office? Yes. 12 people in this office. As more and more people were being impacted by the gospel through the story of Mosaic, we all felt an acute need to see the building expand to facilitate God's work. 
We called our church into investing in the future in 2010. And through the acts of some significant generosity within the church, we felt that we could move forward with the building. To bridge the gap between the money we had and the money we needed, we took out a loan. And that loan allowed us to facilitate the growth in a time where we had simply run out of the ability to do the work that God had called us to do in the building we had. We moved forward with construction and we found that ministry expanded dramatically and effectively. The Oakland campus expansion in 2011 would double the square footage of the building, adding lobby space, worship space, kids' classrooms, and offices, creating lots of room to welcome more people into our story. In the last three years, we have baptized well over 200 people. We have seen over 1,000 people go through our Chapter 1 class. We've welcomed just under 1,000 people into missional communities and other opportunities for community. Literally thousands of different children have benefited from the ministry of Mosaic at weekend gatherings and summer vacation Bible schools in this building. In the last year alone, we've had over 500 middle and high school students come through the doors of this building and experience God. We were just having a meeting the other week. We're talking about Christmas coming up. And, uh, and we said, um, you know, do you think we should promote our, maybe our Christmas Eve service here at Mosaic? And, and in the meeting I said, um, I said, okay, so, so let's say we promote this. And, and let's say the promotion works and a bunch of people show up uh, because they wanted to come to our Christmas Eve service. Where will they sit? Like, honestly, where will they sit? And we're in this weird spot where, um, you know, we're not even trying to grow. And yet when we do grow, we actually genuinely run out of space. It's a difficult place to be in. We would love to be able to welcome more people into the Mosaic story. Not because we want to be big, but because we want to be loud. I remember um, about five years ago when Renaud challenged me to really think big and dream big for the children's ministry here. And I thought, you know, when I started, there were about 24 children in the church. What would be thinking and dreaming really big? And five years ago, we had 150 kids. I already thought I was dreaming big. So I thought about it and I came back to him with, 300 children. I would love to see 300 children consistently attending every weekend in this building. Well, here we are today, uh, having over 400 kids show up in a weekend. It's not a strange weekend for us. We have filled every single room, but not only that, we've even taken over some offices and turned those into children's ministry rooms as well. And then we built an activity pavilion so that we would have more room to minister to the children on the weekends. And then we took over the overflow that was supposed to be for the adults. But you know, I'm ready to keep dreaming big and I'm ready to see what God has for us next. Just three years after we've moved into the new building expansion, it seems we are out of room again. We run two jam-packed Sunday morning gatherings. We've created two Saturday night gatherings to make room on Sunday mornings. We've opened a winter garden campus and a Disney campus. We keep coming up with new creative ways to make room for the continued growth. Oakland being the only building we own, it is particularly overtaxed. Every single room is multi-purpose. Offices are being shared by six, seven, eight staff members. Closets are converted into production spaces. We are squeezing every single ounce that we can out of this building. Every night of the week this building is being used. Kids, students, recovery groups, Bible studies, worship gatherings, leadership trainings, prayer ministry, buddy break for special needs kids. 
And that says nothing about all the elders, staff, and interns who utilize this building in a thousand other ways. We are pressed beyond max every week as we run at 80 or 90% capacity weekend after weekend. So it's clear that great transformation has taken place in the lives of those who have walked into our spaces and found them to be home. But what about when we started this video? What about the orphans, the widows, the destitute, the world that we're called into? I'll tell you, the people of Mosaic Church over the last three and a half years have invested over $2 million into orphan care around the world. We have over 100 children that had no homes adopted into forever families within the walls of this church. We have spent thousands of hours pouring into foster care, safe families, and orphans in our local community. We have allowed marriages to expand in foster care because we babysit foster care kids. We have allowed special needs kids to come in and babysit them as their parents get some space. We have poured into the globe and social justice across the board, doing surgeries that wouldn't take place, sending teams to care for children, and constantly being involved in places like Brazil, South Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, just to name a few. And here locally, we've poured thousands and thousands of man hours into social justice within our city, serving over 30 organizations that care for our city. And this is just the beginning. What would that begin to look like when instead of 2,000 people being transformed to pour themselves into the world for the sake of the gospel, it's 4,000 or 6,000? We recognize that we need to continue to create the space for the ministry of discipleship to take place so that more and more people will be world changers. But the elders have wisely determined that before we start investing in more space, we need to take care of the responsibility that already lays with us. We need to be faithful in the little things in our past before we can step into the big things in our future. We're inviting you, I'm inviting us, into a story where we can generously and sacrificially, above and beyond what we currently give, give to this project so that we can move forward into our future. Look, it's not about a building. It's about world change. So let's prepare for what's next. For some of you, that may mean that for the very first time, you're gonna give financially into the story of Mosaic, and that's exciting to me. And as we do, as we give, we will be able to say, I was part of investing in the space that created world change beyond my wildest imagination. Go to thisismosaic.org forward slash prepare and you will see all the details and how this whole thing works, whether you give one time sacrificially and generously or whether you just increase giving over the time between now and Easter. We all want to be part of the story. We all want to be part of this world change. And I'm inviting us into that. Let's prepare for what's to come. Let's prepare for our future. And let's see what God does with us as we faithfully take care of what's in the past so that he opens the doorway into what waits for us in the future. So that's the story that's unfolded. Yeah, it is an exciting story. And I, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but we have kept moving the seats closer and closer to the stage. Totally uncomfortable, so sorry, so sorry. Uh, we've, we've, kept, we've kept expanding as much as we can in here. We've got all the services going on. Winter Garden campus is full, so we're trying to look at what it would look like to do more services there. This place is full. The Disney campus, we've just changed the room around because it was full. Uh, it just seems like everywhere God is bringing more and more people into our story because he has great stories to write in them and through them.
And those people, those people that are coming into our story, they don't even know it yet, but when they walk in here and they discover the gospel as we have, the devotion that God calls us into, the mission he does, they're going to adopt some of those children that need adopting. They are going to sponsor some of those kids that need sponsoring. They are going to go on mission, serve, and serve our city. They are going to go to their workplaces and their neighborhoods and their spaces and become gospel-centric. They are gonna change the world as we have had the opportunity to do, and together we're gonna do it more. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, we had, as we always do, a plan. We had a plan to take this debt that uh, allowed us to get to where we are today, and over the next eight to 10 years, just to quietly work through it and get it done, and that was a good plan, and it, and it, and it, it is a good plan. It will work. But then all this happened. I mean, we didn't, it didn't expect all this to happen again. And so as we were looking at moving forward, we realized, look, here's the deal. We are not going to do that uh, and create our debt ratios to be out of place. We're just not going to do that. So we got two options. Uh, we hang out for the eight to 10 years. Welcome to all that we have now. So the overflow rooms will come next, and then you'll get ticked. Your children will not get checked into children's ministry because that'll be full. It already happened, so sorry for some of you. And then people will come for a while and they will leave and they'll find other healthy churches where they can be part of their stories. And you know what? The kingdom of God still advances. And then we're good with that. And we will have a bit of an awkward eight years trying to kind of close doors and say no and, and cause people to feel a little off and that's okay. And if that's the plan that God calls us into, then that's the plan we will walk. But we thought, you know what? We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to take what is an eight or 10 year plan on debt reduction and just make it a, a few months, a year, get it done so that we do have the freedom to say, God, what do you want next? There was a space we were gonna rent to start a new campus this summer, and the elders said, you know what, let's not. Let's not step into a new campus until we take care of what we need to hear. So we are inviting you. We are inviting ourselves into this story. Here's what we get to do. We get to, between now and Easter, give generously and sacrificially and prayerfully into the story of reducing what has uh, allowed us to get this far, and in sharing and doing that, you and I open the doors to the stories that wait for us in the future. If you and I do that generously and sacrificially and the debt gets reduced significantly, then in a year from now, we will open more space for more people and more of those stories will emerge and we will share in them. And if we don't, you know what? Then we will plot along for eight years until that's done and then we will start sharing in the stories then. Am I gonna hate the second story? Yes, I am. But thankfully, this isn't my story, is it? It's God's story. And so I'm content as the elders are content with whatever we do next. We are all prayerfully hoping that together, over 2,000 of us can eliminate this silly debt behind us between now and Easter like that. But it's gonna take some work. And if you do participate in this, then when that video plays five years from now and it's much more expansive, many more stories and much more craziness, then you will get to say this, I, I was part of allowing that to happen. God favored us enough to allow us in and we won't have to beg and plead to be part of it. So I pray that you guys will seriously consider participating not only with your means, but above and beyond your means as the churches in Macedonia did. I'm gonna close with this prayer. Tozer, who I told you about, at the end of that chapter, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing, he writes a prayer for himself, for the readers of his book, and now for us. And I want to borrow his prayer and pray this prayer for me and pray this prayer for you as we pray for God to set our hearts free from being possessed by our stuff and release our resources into ministry work that will change the world forever so that we get to participate. Here's what Tozer prayed, and now we pray this. Father, 
I want to know you, but my heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of parting from my stuff. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you might enter and dwell in my life without rival. Then you will make my life a place for your feet to be glorious. Then my heart will have no need for the sun to shine on it, for you will be the light of my heart, and there will be no more night in my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.